You are joining Making a Difference with Melissa Clark, a new show that shares the compelling stories and voices of well-known and everyday people who change the world in big and small ways. Enjoy our guests. Call in or just listen to be inspired. For this show was made with you in mind. Please join us every Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with our special guests. And you can listen to our recast at www.melissaclarkshow.com. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us here on a gloomy Saturday in New York City. Um, I actually love this kind of weather though. Uh, I'm very eager to get to my first guest. Um, however, I just joined the SopranoCon uh, clan over there having a uh, telethon um, and the proceeds go over to the First Responders Children's Foundation. And I teamed up with my friend Karina Consanu. She was actually on the show two weeks ago, and she's making 100 masks for that foundation. Uh, so I want to thank the folks over at uh, Sopranos Con, Michael Moda, Danny Trader, uh, Joe Fama, Bernadette, of course, and Federico Castelluccio. Thank you guys so much for having me on today. Uh, it's been a rough week, and... Um, We lost an amazing guy here, Anthony Causey. Uh, Anthony, I never met, but I actually spoke to him on Instagram. I've worked with his uh, famous DJ, uh, legendary Brooklyn's own Joe Causey. Uh, and Joe is just an amazing human being. I love him so much. I love him. You know, I just, he's so wonderful and nice. And I, I, like I said, I've worked with him before. And he's just, he's just a wonderful person to work with. But uh Uh, uh, Anthony Quasi lost his life um, at the age of 48 and he's been all over the news and they actually have a GoFundMe for his family. He leaves behind two young children and his wife Romina. Uh, so a family friend set up a GoFundMe. It's up to $188,000. They're going to need this. Uh, just like everybody else, you know, their families, you know, um, I just want to say I'm so sorry to the Quasi family. Uh, please head over to GoFundMe and uh, see if you can help them out, just like everybody else. Um, so it's been a crazy week. So Anthony, rest easy. And uh, thank you for being kind to me that time that we spoke and you said I can that you can help me out. Um, I'm babbling because I'm just so excited to get to this first guest, Mr. Paul Ferns. Um, we have mutual friends in common and my girlfriend Colleen was telling me about a story of, um, this he's one of the top, uh, family court attorneys in Rhode Island. Uh, so Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Melissa, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Um, you know, with all tragedy, there's miracles that happen and I'm sitting with one of them right now. So Paul, can we start and, uh. Tell us what happened. You had the coronavirus. Can you tell us what happened? Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, Friday, March 20th was the first day I had uh, symptoms that were uh, aches and pains, very high fever, cough, and uh, extreme fatigue. And I couldn't taste or smell anything. Mm. So I had every symptom. And I called my doctor and they said, well, there's nothing we can do. 
they won't test you. Uh, you don't fall in any risk category of uh, pre-existing condition or asthma or elderly or et cetera. And I said, okay, fine. So they gave me the advice of liquids, Tylenol every four hours, rest, mm-hmm. and good luck. And I said, okay. Yeah. So I did 10 days of that and it was a very, that was not fun. That was uh, anyone who's had the virus and survived knows what it, it's not just the flu. People say it's flu like, well, maybe for some people, mm-hmm. but when you can't move your entire body for 12 hours, cause you're so fatigued and fighting, it's beyond that. And finally 10 days in of enduring that I, Called my paralegal, Amy, who pretty much runs my life. She organizes everything because I don't know what I'm doing. But she, uh, I texted her. I said, I can't breathe. She called me. She said, I'm calling the rescue. And I said, no, 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 no. She's like, why not? I said, I don't know. I, I just don't want to go. I just let me figure this out. So I called her back. Mm-hmm. And she, I said, okay, I'm ready to go. She goes, I already called the rescue. So, so you're, so you were having problems. So throughout that duration of 10 days, you had high fever. Yes. Okay. Cramps, aches and pains, like the flu, but 10 times worse, they say. Is that correct? Pretty much. Yes. It was, uh, I've had the flu before in my life and, you know, one or two days and that was it. This was 10 straight days of just nonstop relenting, like 15 round fight every day. Um, just to get through. Can I add that you were by yourself? Yes, sure, of course. Um, you know, unfortunately, prior to uh, getting sick, uh, my wife and I agreed to separate, and I was in a hotel room to figure out where I was going to live. And I'm glad it worked out that way. Cause thank God, my wife and our, our children, uh, Aiden and Ethan, did not get sick. Uh, my daughter Megan, from my first marriage, did not get sick. And it was just a matter of a timing thing, which was, which was good, uh, sad, but it was good. So, um, I was, my goal was to do I, my, in my head, it was 14 days. I keep hearing 14 days. I got four more and mm-hmm. I'm out. I'll, the fever will break and I'll be good. So you woke up on the, and I'm sorry about, um, what's going on right now. Uh, and, and I wish, you know, everybody well, um, you woke up on the 10th day and you just, you couldn't catch your breath. Did it feel like you were breathing from a straw or can you describe? It was something I've never experienced in my life. Uh, I was very fatigued. I could get up from the bed, go to the bathroom, go back to bed. That was the activity for the day. This was different. I sat up. And I couldn't breathe. I lost my breath. Like someone knocked the wind out of me. And I was trying to catch it. And I couldn't. And I panicked. And I just calmed down. And I laid back. And I very shallow, shallow breathing to be, so I didn't pass out. And um, I've never, it was like drowning, but you're not in water. It's the only way I can describe it. And wow. to take a breath and nothing happened is, is pretty scary. So did your your doctor, did he prescribe medication to you while you were in quarantine? No, there's nothing. There's no medication for it. Just Tylenol to, to mm-hmm. fight the, to fight the, uh, the fever, um, liquids, rest. And there's nothing, to, it's because then it's like, treat, it's, a, it's a virus and there's nothing you can do until it, run, it runs its course. What was your highest fever? Well, 103 without Tylenol, 101. 
it was 100, 101 with the channel every four hours. To be amazed how quickly every four hours comes around when he's eating Tylenol for 10 days straight. It's, it's brutal. Now you were, um, you were in your bed and you know, you obviously very weak. So how did you nourish yourself? I had friends, uh, uh, Ernie and Steve, uh, <laughs> my childhood friends, uh, drop food off outside my hotel room door. You never saw somebody run so fast, uh, down the hall, but I don't blame uh, them. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have stopped either. If I stick my head out, wave to them, said I'm good. And then, they, you know, uh, they took care of me. Um, that's very nice. Yeah. Okay. So now the ambulance came to pick you up. Uh, what happened then? Uh, this gentleman comes walking in in a true space suit and just covered head to toe in a hazmat and a mask. And I was just like, Oh man. And he said, uh, you ready to go? I said, no, but I have to, he said, let's go. Put me in a wheelchair. We'll be down. And they were talking about taking me to Round Hospital or Kent Hospital. And I wanted Kent. I wanted Kent Hospital because I knew clients of mine and friends of mine who worked there. And I knew they knew what they were doing from what I heard. And uh, I said, I'm not going to go to pro take me to Kent. And they did. Kent County Hospital in Warwick, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. In our backyard, my backyard. Uh, I was born there on April 8th, 1970. And uh, I was like, wow, I wonder if I'm going to die here. You know, and it was just like... Um, <sighs> That was the thought. But what really concerned me was talking to my wife, uh, April. She was very, I could just hear it in her voice. It's how concerned she was. I'm like, why are you so, you know, despite the fact we're having our issues, you know, been together over 20 years and it's just, it was a very scary time. And she says, you don't get sick, Paul. You don't get sick. You just, this is, I, this is not right. This is something like, I, I, this is not you because I'm going to meet you at the emergency room. And I said, okay. So they wouldn't let her in, and there's no visitors in the hospital. Um, and they opened the rescue door. So I could see my wife in the parking lot, and she's crying. I'm like, wow, what? Is, like, do I look that bad? Like, what's going on? Like, I know it's serious, but... And I waved to her, and I gave her the thumbs up, and she shook her head like, no, you can't just... You can't fool me. You can't just wave it off and be like, I'm going to be fine. I was like, I blew her a kiss. And I said, and I waved and they took me into a, to a room for treatment. At this time you had the oxygen on, is that correct? They gave you some oxygen. They, when they put me in the rescue, they gave me the oxygen. It was, mm -hmm. it was life saving. It was unbelievable how bad off I was uh, until they put that oxygen. This, the scary part was whenever I think about, I lost my stepdad, uh, Jim Ferns back in 1998 and I, I I remember him going into the rescue and being taken to Kent Hospital he passed 23 days later from cancer but I just remember thinking dad that was his last ride that was his last ride was in the ambulance to Kent and I was in that ambulance they were taking me I knew where I was I could, I could tell from the scenery the, what was passing by me in the windows of the ambulance where I was where I was and I was like is this it is this my last ride like is, is that what that's that was your thoughts when you were inside of the ambulance? It was because it got real. That's why I was telling Amy, don't call, don't call, because I but then it becomes real. And it was real with, with the the paramedics and the, I haven't been in the ambulance in my life. And uh I was scared. I was like, but I was trying to, you know, hold it together and be like, I got this, I got this, I, I got this, but 
when I got into the hospital and they wheeled me in, that's when I was like, I said to the nurse, I'm in pretty rough shape, huh? She said, yeah, yeah, you are. I was like. What a nightmare. Um, it's got to be so scary just for that to happen. Uh, well, the, the part is you're, you're alone. You can't, you're just alone. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was alone for 10 days. I hadn't seen my children. My friends, my coworkers, my colleagues, just my life. And everyone that's going through this is, yeah. is suffering. And but better me than them. And I was okay. I was I mean, I had to be alone. Like no one could see me. So now you get to the hospital and the doctor tells you that they might have to put you on a ventilator, but they're going to pump you with some medicine prior. So that's it was Sunday the twenty ninth when I was brought in about five, 6 PM and they put me in a room with uh, with the nurses were just working on me, test after test, chest x-rays, oxygen, and um, uh, antibiotics uh, intravenous. And for 12 hours uh, between the room, uh, between that room and the room they found, they put me in was, was just sheer, monitoring me to see which way I was going to go. And I knew it first, first hit me when I, I how much trouble I was in. I said to the, the nurse said to me, we're just waiting for a room for you. I said, okay, where am I going? She said, well, either ICU or progressive critical care. And I said, huh, ICU. I said, that's because the hospital is probably what overrun with people that have nowhere to put me. She's like, yeah, no, there's hardly anybody here. We haven't hit the wave yet. You're just that sick. Wow. I was like, oh, so they agreed on, they decided on progressive care critical. And they took me in that Sunday night, uh, probably about, I don't know, eight or nine or 10 o'clock. And I've been there since about five. And this room that they put me in is, is in a basement with no windows. Oh my I can't describe it other than it's like a science fiction room where they call it a negative something room. That's just, like it was just odd because there's all this air ventilation of, you know, looks like I was in a, some movie, a space movie. And then in comes my nurse who looked like he was from that scene in ET when all the government officials are wearing the hazmats and the head oh. gear. And he has this helmet on his breathing gear. And I'm just like, wow, he's, he's being protected from me. He's in here to me, and he's, and I was just like, Oh man, this is serious. This is serious. And so I didn't sleep the entire night. I went, that was eight o'clock at night. I saw, I just stayed awake because I was afraid to fall asleep. I was afraid to fall asleep because I figured I wouldn't wake up. And, and the time stood still in that, in that, those 12 hours, whatever the time the clock said, it didn't matter to me what it was. It meant nothing. So the doctor finally comes in that Monday morning and he, Dr. Arasi, fantastic. He's a brown medical student resident I was his first COVID patient and he looked concerned mm-hmm. and I could see it in his eyes I, I could, you know all you can see are the, are your, are the healthcare workers eyes you don't that's see right. anything else that's right and look in his eyes he was very concerned and because he said to me Mr. Ferns I, I saw your chest x-ray I'm going to show it to you I said okay so he puts it up and apparently, in a chest x-ray, all the dark areas represents air, oxygen, and all white areas is like um, 
pneumonia, fluid, and then mm -hmm. like streaks, streaks of white shows COVID. So they had tested me for COVID. They were waiting on the results. And he said, this x-ray tells me you should be on a ventilator. He said, mm -hmm. there's no black. I couldn't see hardly any black. It was all white. It was like oh, a blizzard in both. Yeah, it was like a blizzard in both my lungs. I was like, huh, no wonder I can't breathe. All right. So we said we have you on six liters of oxygen per hour. You came in at 81% oxygen saturation. We've been blasting you for 12 hours with this, and you're at 91. He said you should be at 120% with if you were healthy. And I said, if there's such a thing, I said, I get it. He said, um, I, I have a ventilator for you if you don't improve or if you crash. And I I said, okay. I, he said, you're on the highest setting. I can't give you any more oxygen than what I have you on. It's a weight. And this is where I would like to convey to people tuning in and listening that this is where the fear comes in. This is the true fear. When you, they don't know. They don't know anything. They don't know what to tell you other than let's wait and see. Let's wait. It's a wait and see. We'll have to see. We don't know. We're not sure. It's so brand new. I'm like, okay. So I, he said, we, this is the, another, the part that's really terrifying is what they do know. What they do know is if you go on a ventilator, it's 50, 50 from there. It's 50, 50, you're getting on or you're getting off. So I said, okay. I said, so what you're telling me is if I get on this ventilator, I don't improve in the next 24 to 48 hours. I got a 50 chance of survival, which means either I'm going to die or the virus is going to die. He said, yeah, if you put it that way, yes. I said, okay, fine. I said, you hold on to that ventilator. I'm not going to need it. Um, I'm not going out like this. Uh, don't worry, doc. I'm going to make sure your first go around with COVID, you're going to be 1-0. You're not going to be 0-1. I'm walking out of here. He said, all right, I hope so. I hope so. So, that's when you, you had asked him if you can kindly have a moment by yourself. And what did you say to yourself at that time? I did. That's right. I did. I, I asked him, I said, could you just give me a moment with my immune system, please? <laughs> he said, okay. And I just, I just, I dug deep and said, okay, you got this. You got this. I wasn't fighting the COVID in my head. I was fighting the ventilator. Like, I'm not going on you. You're not getting to me. You're not. No way. That's for somebody else. Of course, I thought about my kids, Megan, Aiden, and Ethan. Thought about the last 20 years with my wife and Megan's mom, my first marriage, and her, her family. My, my, my life. Thought about my life. I said, I'm not going. I'm not going. And I told my immune system, my wife, I said, you, let's go. Let's go. You got to do this. And they said, all right, we got this. It's like, cool. He came back and I said, we're good. I said, we're good. I said, just give me a chance. He said, okay. So I was on six liters of oxygen for our uh, – And you Monday. had – and you – and I'm sorry for interrupting you. Are you okay? We're, no, I'm good. No, I'm good. <laughs> I got, okay. nothing, I, got nothing, I got nothing to hide. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for talking with us. Um, at this time, you had people doing Reiki for you. Is that correct? Your, your, was it your sister who 
who started well, doing Reiki? My, my sister Sharon, who Sharon Sigatory, who was just instrumental in keeping my spirits up, getting the word out, having people support me. Um, you know, I don't subscribe to any one particular philosophy of life. I start with Christianity, which is, I don't think is a bad place to start. But mm-hmm. Reiki and Buddhism and Taoism and just any philosophy, I I, I accept it all because I think it's it's there isn't any one way. So I have a client, Kate, who uh, was a Reiki master, and she would send me. I, I guess she, she she does Reiki from let's say remotely from her house. And mm-hmm. She sends she sends it at night, and she said that you reveal your your true self or your. Uh, inner self or your former self when she does the Reiki. Some days she'll tell me, Hey, do you want to see what you showed me? I'm like, sure. And she would tell me. And so I was in touch with Kate because she knew what was happening. And. Uh, Well, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I just want to let people know who I'm I'm so sorry, Paul, people who don't know uh, what Reiki is. Reiki is energy that um, people put into other people and, um, you know, it's just positive energy and healing. And, uh, yeah, I, I have had Reiki in my life. Um, have you ever had Reiki before though? With no, somebody I, standing? Mm. Never have. Uh, wow. okay. I, and I was okay with that. With, I, I trusted Kate. It's like, sure. I'm, I'm open-minded to anything, especially in that, in those moments. Right. And that, that Monday, so we're on Sunday, and that Monday after the doctor left, I was in and out of consciousness for, you know, that, that Monday I was, cause I was exhausted. And, and I felt a presence next to me to the point where I was in the hospital bed and I kind of turned to look, but nobody was there, but mm-hmm. it was like, it felt like my grandfather, you know, people, people give off different energy and different auras and when they're standing next to you and you can tell who it is. It, it, it was my grandfather, my mom's, a uh, father who passed away in 1985 when I was 15. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow, this, this can't be good. So uh, I'm like, I'm okay. I'm okay. And uh, Kate asked me that uh, what if I would like to hear what I revealed or what she saw. And she said she saw my ancestors coming for me. Wow. I said, what? She goes, yeah. She said, they were coming for you, Paul. But they were stopped. And they were stopped by praying hands and they turned around and I said well I gotta tell you from what I can hear when I'm reading and text messages and Facebook etc there's a lot of people praying for me so it would make sense and it worked I wasn't ready they knew I wasn't ready and that's okay um and I I went on from 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 there so now you left the hospital. You 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 actually improved. Your um, oxygen went up. So by that Friday, I was off the oxygen and in uh, non-critical care. Uh, they lowered the oxygen from six liters to five liters to four liters to three. I was I was I was winning. I was winning, and I won. That's I, so uh, wonderful. And then that Friday's. That Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, the 7th of April, the day before my 50th birthday, I was discharged. They wanted me to get stronger, obviously, in my lungs, and I just got stronger, and I walked out of there. I walked out of there like, you didn't get me. You didn't get me. <laughs> but I will say it comes with a little bit 
of a guilt and a, and a sadness because I had learned that other people were in that I grew up with mm-hmm. Joe Amoroso who heard from a friend of mine, Dennis, a common friend that I was in with him. We're in the same floor and he went through hell. He went through hell. It didn't get on a ventilator. Thank God. But he, he walked out too, but he heard, he heard what I heard. He heard code blues. He knew what was going on around us. And, and, What's going on is the healthcare workers that saved our lives and continue to save people's lives, they are truly at the front lines and they're risking their lives to save my life and Joe's life and everybody else's life. The respect I have for them is beyond measure because my friend Mark, who I also grew up with, mm-hmm reached out to me on Facebook and said, I heard what happened, Paul. I have it too. I'm in day 17. I'm isolated, but not in the hospital. And I said, wow, Mark, hang in there. And then I checked with him when I got out of the hospital and he said, I'm 21 days out. I'm feeling better back to work. And I said, back to work. Are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? You just got over. And I said, wait a minute. Are you a nurse? He said, yes, at Landmark Medical in Winsaka. I said, Mark, you're going back in? Yeah, I'm going back to work. The idea of me going back to a situation where I could possibly get COVID relatively easily, I, I'm not that brave. I'm not that brave. I wouldn't go. And I look at and I said, Mark, I cannot thank you and your colleagues enough. And by the people at Kent County, the, the nurses, the doctors, the staff, I can't thank them enough. They were just unbelievable. And another part of this story was my friend Kelly. This is, again, I, I, I can sit here and say I'm, I'm lucky I walked out of there. And here we have your friend who passed away. Why him? Why did he pass away and I didn't? I, and that's the whole question. Nobody knows. The randomness of this is what's the, the scariest part. You have people who are in their 80s walking out and people in their 30s, mm-hmm. healthy with no complications, dying. So... Kelly was an administrator at Kent Hospital. She heard I was in the hospital. She texted me and said, oh, my God, Paul, I hope you're okay. I know you're here. Keep fighting. And I said, thank you, Kelly. I will. And she reached out to me. And then her father, Artie, and her stepmother got sick with COVID. Last time Kelly and I and her dad saw each other together, we were on a golf course in June of last year, laughing and just having a great time. He was a wonderful man. And I know Kelly my whole life. And so unfortunately they, her dad and her stepmom contracted the COVID virus and he passed away this week. I'm sorry. And here I was reaching back out to her to say how sorry I was for her loss of her father and how, and how sad I am for her mother, stepmother, who's in the same hospital I'm in, who's fighting for her life. This virus has no boundaries. It's taken so much from people. Even those who aren't sick, it's taken us economically, financially, emotionally, psychologically. Mm-hmm. And people who think that it's just like the flu or it's, you know, 
it's going to pass. It's not true. It is a deadly, if, if someone could tell me the last time the virus or the disease that the healthcare workers are trying to save the people's lives from are dying from it. I don't remember smallpox, maybe the Spanish flu. I don't know. These yeah. people are risking their lives. And, um, I, I, I feel a little guilty, but at the same time, that's, that's their job. And they yeah. know that that's, that's why they do it. If I can just, um, just say, I don't, I don't think you should feel guilty. You, you, it wasn't your time. I, I always believe, you know, like, you know, I spoke to you and I lost both my mom and dad in 18 months apart. And you know, this, this life, we're just here to do our job and then we go. Um, I, I, I always think the way that it, the, um, uh, uh, like Buddha thinks, you know, we're just here for a, a short time, you know, and we do our thing and then we leave, but I don't want you to feel bad because you have three beautiful kids that need you here, but this is life. It's not fair. It, it is what it is. And we just have to pray and pray for everybody that is here. Uh, until we go into a different uh, journey. Uh, that's the way I always think. And um, I understand. And, and, and I know people would say, say the same thing, but it's, it's just surreal when one moment someone's telling you to fight for your life, keep going and, and supporting you, and you have to turn around and support them at the same week and say, I'm so sorry. And this is, this, this is, just, and this is where I told people on the Facebook, I said, not to alarm anybody, but this is just the beginning. Yeah. This is just the beginning. This is not the end. And the way the social distancing is working, it's just a way to give the healthcare system a chance to breathe and catch up and not be inundated. Because if we open everything up back up all at once, it's going to be like we saw in New York City and around, in Italy and around the world. Mm-hmm chaos and death everywhere this is just delaying the inevitable yeah the scary part is melissa is i'm I'm saying it now i'm going to get reinfected i will it's this this isn't i'm not immune when i said to the doctor i said okay so can i leave now like with the idea like i'm confident i'm it can't touch me again he says we don't know it's too early The, the antibodies studies aren't aren't even being finished yet. So I said, great. So I could get reinfected. Yes. It could also mutate into another type of uh, virus that you have no immunity to. So the scary part is it's, it can happen again and it will. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. You know, and I think everybody needs to be ready for it. The, there's just no rhyme or reason to whether you're going to make it or not. That I mean, literally, we're talking life, make, make it or not. We know the stories. We know the stories of who's not making it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that for anybody. But this is the reality. I saw it firsthand. I dealt with it firsthand. And I saw it firsthand in the hospitals and what I was hearing from the doctors. They don't know. They don't know. And that's the scariest part. Right. So what we need to do is have hope. We need to have God or whoever we believe in by our side. 
and that's what I want, you know, that's what I would want for you. I know that this is, this is very traumatizing for you. I could see it in your eyes. I'm sure the whole audience sees it. And, um, and, uh, I don't, I agree with you. You know, again, subscribing to some different philosophies of life. Believe it. One of my favorite philosophers is Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee's philosophy of life is, is one like no, no other. And I, I, his statement of don't pray for an easy life, pray for the strength to endure a difficult one. And that's what we have to dig deep in these moments. We all have moments of a difficult life, not whatever it may be. We all have a story. Everyone has a story. This is my story. Yeah. And we're, we're happy that you're here to share it. And I want to take a little break right now because, like I told you, I have a little surprise for you. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, let's take a deep breath, everybody. Uh. <laughs> Namaste. Um, I invited my friend Chantel. Um, this song, I listened to this song, and um, it's I Hope You Dance by Leanne Rhymes. And I wanted her to sing it for you and for everybody um, that has either lost somebody or is in recovery. Every We're all in this together. And, uh, you know, my favorite saying is, if God brings you to it, he'll, sing you, he'll see you through it. And that has helped me throughout my life. You know, everybody, we, all, we don't have um, easy lives here, but we have to make the most of it. We have to love each other while we're here on earth. And uh, this is my little present for you. So, Chantel, thank you so much for joining us. Beautiful Chantel. She's a wonderful singer. <laughs> Whenever you're ready. Thank you. Mistake, but it's worth making. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Chantel. Oh, thank you, Paul, for sharing your story with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Beautiful. Okay, Paul, did you like those for your kids and <laughs> for you and everybody out there? Thank you, Chantel, so much. You're amazing. Please follow Chantel and her. She's unbelievable. She'll be back. <laughs> I'll have you come back Absolutely. every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Should I tell you welcome to stay or if you're busy, you know, just uh Paul, I love you. I just met you, you're amazing. Let's uh let's you okay? I'm good. I'm okay. good. Let's continue. So now we are home. You got home. Well <laughs> I walked out of the uh hospital that Tuesday, April seventh, and I I called you. Uh-huh. I called you right when I left because I, I knew Colleen and I and you were talking about telling my story and sharing uh-huh. what I knew and what I experienced. And, oh, I was so overjoyed. I, I said victorious in the promo because when I, I, I felt like gladiator walking out of Kent Hospital. Like, I felt like you didn't kill me. I don't know who I was talking to, but it's just like you didn't get me. No, not today. Uh-huh. And I, I was in my car and I, put on YouTube, a beautiful day. And I just opened the sunroof and the sun was hot. It was hot day. I was, be- I was just like, Oh my God, I am alive. I am alive. I got the picture. I got the picture to prove it. Like, like I'm taking off. I'm out. So I thought, and I went to a, another hotel to uh, buy some time four or five days before I moved into a house that I'm renting. And, my friend Alan Lau, who uh, is a wonderful chef and friend, and uh, said, where are you going to be? I said, I'm going to be at this hotel. What time? I said, I don't know, 5, 6 p.m. He goes, all right, I'm going to make you chicken with rice and grilled vegetables and leave it outside your door. Again, they drop it and they run, which is, I, yeah. I don't blame them. 
<laughs> and uh, I said, okay. Now, I've eaten the hospital food right along for, you know, whatever it was, uh, nine, ten days. And uh, it was really good, by the way. I love Kent. Kent hospital food was fantastic. <laughs> Shout um, out to Ken. Yes. Cutie. Oh, Sedesco. <laughs> Sedesco. I had to find out like who the caterer was. Who, who like who gives this food? It's pretty good. Anyway, so, but I wanted Alan's Chinese, uh, whatever he makes food. And so I opened the door and there, I waved down the hall to him. And there's a plate uh, and, and my root beer and the veggies. I take it in the hotel and I'm just like, I'm in heaven. So I devour it. It's delicious. And within 10 minutes, I threw the whole thing up violently in the bathroom, like an exorcist movie. Like my body wasn't just throwing up. It was expelling anything that I had in me. I was like, what was that? I, 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 I ate no problem at the hospital. I was suffering and fighting COVID, never got nauseous or sick once. And then within five minutes of that is when my life at that moment changed where I knew I didn't have to guess something was really, really wrong. It felt like I got stabbed with three different knives with the blades still in there. And I could find no relief of sitting, walking, lying, like no matter what I did, the pain got worse. And I sat on that bed for two hours thinking it's indigestion. That's all. I ate it too quick. You know, like I'm just trying to ra- justify and rationalize that this is going to go away. But by two o'clock that morning, I said, okay, uh, I'm going. And I wasn't going to, I didn't call the rescue. I didn't want to deal with the, the hazmat suits and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't want to scare anybody at the hotel. I got in my car from Narragansett and drove to camp myself at two, three in the morning, dying from pain. I didn't care. I was in my car. I was driving my terms. I'm going. And I walk into or drag myself into Kent County, uh, right back where I was 12 hours earlier to the ER. I plop myself down in a wheelchair and I take my mask off and I tell the woman, the nurse, and I can't breathe and I can't talk because I'm in so much pain. I said, I was here 12 hours ago, had COVID, beat it. I can't breathe. Boom. They bring me in get me into a room and the ER nurse and the ER doctor are like, well, your oxygen saturation is a hundred percent, you know, uh, all your other tests look great. And I'm like writhing in pain on the gurney thinking, okay, I don't care what the numbers say. I can't talk. I can't breathe. Like I'm pointing like, cause I can't, I'm like my ribs, my ribs pain. I can't, I said, I need morphine. I need something. And they're like, well, you know, do you do any street drugs? Are you, you know, I'm like, Oh my God. I said, I'm a lawyer with three kids. I don't do street drugs. I'm don't know what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. So another nurse heard me. She said, I'm going to get you some morphine. I said, Oh, thank God. She got me right. morphine and I was able to calm down. They pull out the ultrasound, did an ultrasound. I said, oh, here it is. Here it is. I'm like, what, what? They said, your gallbladder. Oh, bladder's inflamed. It's got stones. It's got sludge. Oh man, this is bad. I was like, oh great. Oh, You've got to be kidding me. We're gonna admit you, okay? So they admit me, and now I, my kids and my friends and everyone thinks I'm out, including you. I'm not out. I'm back in. And I texted my paralegal Amy. I said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Like it was gonna be a secret. Like, I was gonna get out of there without upsetting anybody. She's like, don't tell anybody. What are you talking about? I'm like, all right, fine. 
So I had to tell my kids, my wife, my family, my sister, my loved ones, I'm back in. I'm back in. Like, what do you mean you're back in? I'm like, I'm back in. I, I, I have a gallbladder situation. I don't know. And oh it's like, God. you've got to be kidding me. That feeling of victory that I felt walking out of that hospital compared to what I felt in that moment of sheer and utter defeat. Like I was losing. And that's how I, I handle the situation. It's truly a battle. Like who's going to win? And I was just like, how to gear up again or amp up again or get talk to your body again to be like, okay, all right. I know you beat COVID, but now we've got another situation. This is what we got to do. It's just like, so. They, they told you that you had like the fifth worst case, right? And, uh, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That the surgeon <laughs> the next day said, Oh, Hey, yeah. By the way, you know, your gallbladder was probably the fifth worst gallbladder I've seen in 10 years. I'm like, wow. Wouldn't make, of course, of course it was. So I get, so that, that, um, Friday, it was good Friday, mm-hmm. April 10th. I felt like I was in a movie, a bad movie. When the doctor comes in and says, okay, we're going to give you pain meds for two weeks. We want your lungs stronger. We want you to be able to get off that ventilator. I'm like, what ventilator? They're like, well, we have to ventilate you when you have general anesthesia mm-hmm. and surgery. I'm like, here we go. Here we go. The ventilator. The ventilator is coming to get me again. You son of a. And I said, well, okay. I don't like being oxycodone for two weeks. I'm a little concerned about that, but I'm more concerned about not getting off the, uh, the ventilator, obviously. Mm-hmm. And that was the plan. I ordered my breakfast. Hour later, they said, cancel a breakfast. You're going in. And then the doctor comes in and says, this is where it's like the bad movie. So it's like, no, whatever that lock, last doctor said, you're going in today. You're going in today. It's coming out. Your levels are rising. You've got your leaking bile, whatever it is. Wow. You're going to be septic, pancreatitis. This is it's coming out. I said, okay. Um, but, but what about the, the lungs, the two weeks, the manage the pain, get me stronger? They're like, you should be fine. You should wake up. You should be all right. I said, I should have been telling me. It just told me an hour ago, you want to give me two weeks to get my lungs short to get up. Now, now it's, I should be fine. Wow. They said, well, based on your CAT scan and listen to your lungs. Yes. We know you had COVID. We know it's, you're still, you know, compromised, but they had no choice. They had to get it out and I get it. What are they going to tell me? No, you're not going to get off it, you know, but, and they didn't say, oh yeah, don't worry, boy. You're definitely going to get off. They said, you should. So you go, you should. So you go into surgery, you wake up. What happens? Well, prior to that, I called my wife and I told her, and I've always had this, I don't know, weird pride of like, I'm just not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I was afraid. Mm -hmm. The first time in my life, I was afraid because now I'm at the, the very thing I'm trying to avoid. Don't go on that ventilator is in front of me again and it's there to save my life to keep me alive during the operation but it's, could kill me mm-hmm. so i told her i was scared and i was so i have about five o'clock that night friday night if you're gonna get surgery good friday is not a bad bad day so i was like okay i got that going for me all right yeah so uh 
which was nice. So I um, got wheeled into the room with the anesthesiologist before they came in, hooking me up. And I had a moment again, another round two with myself. And this is the moment where I'll never forget because I was as close to, to possibly not making it as my entire life. But, but knowing it, to get run over by a bus, it's over. When you're sitting there waiting and, and, you, and, you, and you know you, couldn't, you might not wake up, you might not make it again, it's just it's mind-boggling. And you're alone. You're all alone. And I said, okay. So sad. I was trying to remember I talked to the kids. I was trying to remember what we said, what we did. That I, it had been over three and a half weeks. I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember. And I was thinking, was the last time I spoke to my children was with my wife to tell them about our divorce? Is, was that the last moment they have of me? I said, I can't. I can't. I can't have that. I can't, I, I'm not going out like this. I'm not going out like this. No. And then I was thinking about my life. It wasn't flashing before my eyes, but it was a peaceful feeling because I felt like I did it right. I felt like I treated people the way they wanted to be treated. I feel like I helped people when I could, in any way I could. I felt satisfied with myself as a person on this earth. And if I was going to go, I was okay. I, had, I, had, I, I felt like I gave it my all. I, I, I gave life my all. I left it on the basketball court. I left it on the football field. I left it in the courtroom. I left it at whatever my efforts were. I just left it all out there. And there's nothing more I could do. And the difference between fighting COVID, having a conversation with your immune system to fight it, is you have some control. You're awake. You're going to fight it. You have thoughts and you have energy. When you're going to be put under and you don't know if you're going to wake up, there's no fight. It's either you wake up or you don't. And it's a wait and see, as always. The last thing I remember before I went out, the thought I had was, I hope I wake up and I was out. And so at 8.35, I heard, Paul, Paul, wake up. And I said, Am I alive? They said, yes. I said, am I off the ventilator? They said, yes. And I said, oh, oh. <laughs> Victory. I made, <laughs> I made it, you son of a bitch. I made God it. Bless. I, I got off the ventilator. I got, off, I got off. And I was so awake and so alert and texting and calling people. And they'd be like, we never see anybody who had three hours of anesthesia be so alert. I said, I am pumped beyond your wildest dreams. I have so much adrenaline right now. I could fly out of here. Well, we have, I love it. We have two more minutes left. What would you like to say to your family and to everybody who's reached out to you? We, we already discussed the nurses. You, you said such an amazing thing. What about your family and your friends? Thank you for your love, support, kindness, consideration, time, the outpouring of love support through text messages and Facebook. And I just, if I, if I had to look behind me when I first got sick to see how long the line was of people that love me and care about me, I didn't, I didn't know. It was, I didn't know how long, long that line really is. 
I was getting messages from people, from friends of mine from 1975 when I was five years old living in Cranston who I haven't seen in 30 years saying, through the power of Facebook, love you, you got this. And it's a long, it's, it's, it's a good feeling, but my message is, is that I made it. I'm appreciative of life. I want my, everyone listening to also take these moments not for granted. And if, God forbid, they or their loved ones get sick, you just, you got to pray and you have to fight. And that's all you can do. You pray and you fight. And that's the only thing that's going to beat it. And I, my story is not unique. Everyone has a story of survival out there, but I'm here to tell it. I'm here to tell, to see what I saw, what I felt, and what I heard. And it was surreal, scary, and I was very lucky. And I thank my body. <laughs> I thank my body for, for doing what it was supposed to do. I mean, I, it, just, it just did its job, and I can't... Uh, I'm so happy. And I, 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 so next year, uh, hopefully when I celebrate 51, uh, it's going to be a celebration of life. And I want it sponsored by Corona beer because I think it's kind of uh, <laughs> appropriate to say F you, you know, you, you know, and but <laughs> I, I wish everyone out there listening, ha- happiness, health. Thank you for listening. And I pray for everyone that you don't have to go through this. I really, really don't want anyone to go through this. Thank you, Paul, so much for your time, for your just being you. I just met you and I love you. And every time we get off the phone, I say, I love you. So I'm so proud. Thank 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 you. you. Same to you. Thank you very much. And to your children, I'm so happy that you have your father. uh, And we will pray for those who do not. And um, Chantel, thank you so much. And Thank you guys so much for tuning in and uh, we'll see you next week. Be kind to each other. I interviewed Jerry Springer and I actually took his thing. What, what does he say? Be kind to, to yourself and each other. I can't remember and, what. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That, that, yeah <laughs> but that, yes, be, be kind to each other. Love each other. I love you. Uh, and I love everybody. So namaste. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao.